Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Rost, and I'll be your guide as you explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from Our Missouri. Fifty years ago this summer, 1969 to be exact, the space race pitting the United States against the Soviet Union was reaching the proverbial finish line. The only question that remained was who would land on the moon first. Over the next four episodes, we will explore the history behind the contributions made by Americans, and more specifically Missourians, to not only explore the far reaches of space, but also to land a person on the moon. So, let's prepare for launch. Quality, go. Mercury capsule. Go. Seconds counting eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Lift off. The clock is operating. We're underway. Roger, we're programming and roll okay. A little bumpy along about here. Stand by for 20 seconds. Roger, backup clock is started. Today's episode takes us to the American Living Room, circa 1969. There were three channels, and if you were lucky, you could find quality entertainment and news on all three options, NBC, ABC, and CBS. But for many Americans and Missourians at that, there was only one person that the TV dial was always tuned to, Walter Cronkite. This was especially true as the space race of the 1950s and 1960s heated up with the launch of each new space mission. For all of his distinguished honors regarding his coverage of political campaigns, wartime reporting, and national tragedies, including being known as the most trusted man in America, it was the space race that made Cronkite into a household name. And yet, the path Cronkite took to the top of television journalism was by no means an easy one. It started far from the bright television studio lights of New York City. In fact, it started in St. Joseph, Missouri. Walter Leland Cronkite Jr. was born at St. Joseph's Gray Lying in Hospital on November 4, 1916. His parents, Walter and Helen Cronkite, had moved back and forth between St. Joseph and nearby Leavenworth, Kansas, in the years before his birth. His mother, Helen Frisch, had grown up in Leavenworth at the turn of the 20th century. She met Walter Sr. when he accepted a position as a staff dentist at the Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary. 
The Cronkites were well known in the dental community. F.P. Cronkite, Walter's grandfather, had made a name for himself as a renowned expert in restoration dentistry. Walter Sr. followed in his father's footsteps and graduated from Kansas City Dental College in 1914. While he initially set up his dental practice in St. Joseph, Walter Sr. longed for the day when he could relocate his family to the bright lights of nearby Kansas City. This move had to wait, however, as Walter Sr. was drafted into the medical corps during World War I. With her husband away in France, Helen and Walter Jr. spent some time in Oklahoma where Walter Sr. had been stationed before moving back to Missouri. When the war ended and he returned home, Walter Sr. immediately made plans to open his dental practice in Kansas City. Though he had been born in St. Joseph and he would spend most of his life on the East Coast, Walter Cronkite always considered Kansas City to be his hometown. He spent only eight years of his youth in Kansas City, but he enjoyed the sights and sounds of the up-and-coming city. Pendergast-era Kansas City had a lot of body entertainment to tempt young Cronkite, but his parents made sure that he stayed far away from these locations. Nevertheless, he knew the city's distinct pulse thanks to a job as a paperboy for the Kansas City Star, the Saturday Evening Post, and other publications. Even from a young age, Cronkite knew how to dispense the news as well as how to sell it. Yet Cronkite's youthful days in Kansas City would be brief. Around his 10th birthday, his father received a lucrative job offer from the Texas Dental School in Houston. In 1927, the Cronkites left their Missouri familial ties behind and headed for Houston. One of the first things that Cronkite noticed about his new home was racism. He had attended an integrated school in Kansas City, though he had no doubt grown up in a racially divided city. Houston, however, was a community dominated by Jim Crow. He attended an all-white school, and he lived in all-white neighborhoods. He later told of a story that truly disgusted him and stamped the evils of racism directly into him. While attending a dinner hosted by one of his father's dental school colleagues, an African-American delivery man was verbally and physically accosted for bringing items to the front of the home instead of the back. The Cronkites were deeply shaken by the event, and Walter Sr.'s apparent defense of the delivery man made him enemies in the dental school. The strain felt between Walter Sr. and the Texas Dental School only got worse as the Great Depression set in soon after the family's arrival in Houston. With the school facing foreclosure and Helen's parents opting to relocate to Texas, the Cronkite's stable middle-class life slowly faded away. Facing the prospects of failing in his career ambitions, Walter Sr. began to drink more and more, and his alcoholism put even more strain on the family. In 1932, Helen filed for divorce. Walter Sr. decided to move back to St. Joseph to revive his dental career. Having just started at San Jacinto High School, it was decided that Helen and Walter Jr. would remain behind in Houston for him to finish his education. He may not have liked how the move to Texas impacted his family, but Houston was home, and Walter planned to make the most of it. While attending school in Houston, Cronkite rekindled his interest in journalism. But now, he moved from just delivering the newspaper to actually writing in it. Though he still worked the delivery route for the Houston Post as a student at Sydney Lanier Middle School, Cronkite served on the staff of the school newspaper. Continuing on the newspaper staff at San Jacinto High School, he also turned his earlier work for the Houston Post into a summer job. By the time he graduated high school in 1933, Cronkite had helped edit two newspapers, served in several capacities at the Houston Post, and won a state journalism award for his writing. It certainly seemed that a return to St. Joseph in Kansas City was in the works, as he had all the credentials necessary to enroll at the prestigious journalism school at the University of Missouri. Instead, Cronkite decided to stay close to his mother and enrolled at the University of Texas. Cronkite enjoyed his time at the University of Texas. In addition to a growing social calendar, he also found time to work in radio and press journalism. But as he later noted, his work outside of the classroom had a negative impact on what he did in the classroom. In 1935, he opted to drop out of college and accept a job with the Houston Press. A year later, he returned to his old hometown when he took a position with a radio station KCMO in Kansas City. His time at KCMO would be brief, however, after clashing with the manager over running a breaking news story without first checking the sources. 
Yet he did manage to meet Mary Elizabeth Maxwell, a copywriter and University of Missouri graduate who also worked for the radio station. They married in 1940. Cronkite's marriage offered stability in his life and helped offset a period of instability in his employment situation. After his fire from KCMO, Cronkite accepted a position with the United Press Telegraph News Agency. United Press, now known as UPI, was in need of a night editor at its Kansas City Bureau, as well as some journalistic work in Texas. Cronkite's first major story was a school explosion in Texas, but he was unsatisfied with UP and quit. He spent a brief period of time shuttling between Texas, Oklahoma, and Missouri, including stints as a radio broadcaster for University of Oklahoma football games and the manager of the Kansas City-based Braniff Airlines. Finally, he relented and returned to United Press in an effort to rectify his earlier mistake. His second time at UP proved to be successful, and he rose to the journalism ranks covering the front lines of World War II, the shocking revelations of the Nuremberg trials, and the early years of the Cold War. But to truly make a name for himself, Cronkite would need to break into a new form of media, the television. Hi, I'm Daniela Griego, the Education Coordinator for the State Historical Society of Missouri. I'd like to talk to you briefly about National History Day in Missouri. National History Day in Missouri is a unique opportunity for middle and high school age students to explore the past in a creative, hands-on way by producing a documentary, exhibit, paper, performance, or website on a topic of their choosing. In June, Missouri students traveled to Washington, D.C. for the national contest and brought home three bronze medals and two outstanding entry awards. In 2020, the theme will be Breaking Barriers in History, and we look forward to the amazing projects Missouri students will produce. To learn more about National History Day in Missouri, including how to start a program at your own school, please visit shsmo.org nhdmo. Television was a relatively new invention by the time that Walter Cronkite returned from Europe in the late 1940s. Few people at the time could foresee the impact that it would have on American society and American culture. In fact, when Cronkite first announced his intention of venturing into television media, his colleagues thought for sure that his journalism career was over. Nevertheless, Cronkite took a chance on television and accepted a position with CBS, broadcasting political updates from Washington, D.C. to affiliate stations in the Midwest. Realizing his potential, CBS soon assigned him to various roles within the network, including covering political campaigns, sporting events, documentaries, and daytime programming. Having served in all of these roles, including as one of CBS's primary weekend news anchors, it was not long before Cronkite received a major promotion. In 1962, Walter Cronkite premiered as the new host of what would become the CBS Evening News. Though he spent the majority of the 1960s trailing network rivals Chet Huntley and David Brinkley of NBC's Huntley-Brinkley Report in the ratings, the anchorman earned the nation's respect and admiration as he guided viewers through the triumph and tragedy of the 1960s. He spoke with former President Dwight Eisenhower on the beaches in Normandy during an anniversary of D-Day. He calmed a mourning nation in the aftermath of assassinations of men like John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, and Martin Luther King Jr., and he supported and then ultimately critiqued the government's handling of the Vietnam War. Through it all, Cronkite became a fixture on television screens that occupied a prime spot in the American living room. But there was one subject that truly captured Cronkite's full attention. The space race. When Sputnik launched in 1957, Walter Cronkite, like many Americans, was stunned. CBS, however, did not angle Cronkite's broadcast to the space race until Project Mercury began to pick up steam in the early 1960s. Yet, in addition to covering Alan Shepard's Freedom 7 mission, Cronkite quickly scored a major interview with cosmonaut Yuri Gergerin, the first human in space. After having Cronkite broadcast from a makeshift studio for the launch of Freedom 7, CBS moved quickly to establish a full-time residence on Cape Canaveral. When John Glenn became the first American to orbit the Earth, Cronkite stayed on the air for nearly 10 hours to keep his eager audience attuned to the sights and sounds from liftoff to splashdown. Soon enough, Cronkite had a backstage pass to the inner workings of NASA. 
much to the chagrin of some of his network rivals. Cronkite's intense focus on the manned space program and his seemingly all-access pass from NASA may have drawn the ire of other news anchors, but it was a ratings windfall for CBS. By opting to cover all of the Gemini missions himself, Cronkite became the face of space and soon saw his ratings soar. At the end of 1968, with that tumultuous year coming to a dreary end, Cronkite hoped that the successful launch of Apollo 8 would ring in 1969 as a year of hope. When the Apollo 8 crew of Frank Borman, William Anders, and Jim Lovell orbited the moon on Christmas Eve, Cronkite basked in the moment. Not only had the astronauts provided the weary and war-torn Earth a glimpse of the surface of the moon, but also a hauntingly beautiful image of itself, Earthrise. July 16, 1969, a date roughly a decade in the making, finally arrived at Cape Kennedy with fanfare, large crowds, and of course, Walter Cronkite. An estimated 1 million people came to Florida to see the crew of Apollo 11 off to the moon. For such a monumentous occasion, CBS pulled out all the stops, including pairing Cronkite with Mercury 7 astronaut Wally Shearer. Over the span of eight days, Cronkite shuttled between Florida and New York to talk with dignitaries and commentators on a variety of topics related to the much-anticipated moon landing. On July 20th, he was in his New York's television studios preparing for what would be over 24 hours on air with only a few breaks. When the lunar module Eagle touched down on the moon's surface, Cronkite and Shira were both speechless. Having long pondered what wit and wisdom to proclaim at such a historic moment, Cronkite couldn't find the words to describe how he felt. Wow. He began as if channeling the feelings of a mesmerized child. Oh boy. The broadcast day was not done when the Eagle landed on the moon. While NASA and the astronaut crew performed testing and preparation for the next stage of the mission, Cronkite and his studio crew had to hold the audience's attention for the next several hours. With midnight fast approaching on the East Coast, Neil Armstrong opened the module's door and ascended a ladder to the moon's surface. Each small step was historic, and Cronkite let Armstrong and NASA do all the talking. And when Armstrong's now famous, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, was first spoken, the static from the communication line prevented a confused Cronkite from fully hearing the entire phrase until a little while later. Nevertheless, Cronkite enjoyed the moment and guided his audience through the arrival of Buzz Aldrin, the planting of the American flag, and the communication between astronauts and President Richard Nixon. In all, Cronkite was on air for a good portion of the roughly 21 hours that Eagle sat on the moon's surface. His persistence paid off as nearly half of the entire television audience that tuned in to watch the historic event did so with the dial tuned to CBS. On July 24, 1969, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins splashed down the Pacific Ocean near Hawaii. They were picked up by a helicopter and escorted quickly to a quarantine chamber aboard the USS Hornet. After a few weeks in quarantine, the three astronauts became global sensations. Having been NASA's supporter since Project Mercury, Walter Cronkite got a featured interview with all three of them on CBS's Face the Nation. Yet, with all of the worldwide attention given to the Apollo 11 crew, the remaining Apollo missions from 1969 to 1972 went off with little fanfare and attention outside of the ill-fated Apollo 13. Walter Cronkite still manned the desk alongside Wally Shearer for Apollo 12 through 17, but the moon had lost its luster. The space race, for all intents and purposes, was over. The Missouri Bicentennial provides an occasion for reflecting upon an increasing understanding of various aspects of the state's cultural and geographic landscape. Missouri 2021 invites professional and amateur photographers to capture and share unique and meaningful aspects of place in Missouri. Through the My Missouri 2021 Photograph Project, 200 photographs will be selected to be part of the permanent Missouri Bicentennial Collection at the State Historical Society of Missouri. 
Together, these images will create a snapshot of the state's physical and cultural landscape during its bicentennial that will be available to researchers, teachers, and students, and the public for generations to come. To learn more about the My Missouri 2021 Photograph Project, please visit missouri2021.org my-missouri. By the 1970s, a poll found that many Americans considered Walter Cronkite to be the most trusted man in America. Such an honorary title was significant considering it was born at a time of events like the Pentagon Papers and Watergate. Cronkite would carry this title for the rest of his life. After retiring from the CBS Evening News in 1981, he still stayed active on television and select programming, but his screen time decreased dramatically. In retirement, Cronkite was honored with a bust in the Hall of Famous Missourians, President Jimmy Carter presented him a Presidential Medal of Freedom, and NASA awarded him the Ambassador of Exploration Award. When he died in 2009, Cronkite was buried in Kansas City's Mount Moriah Cemetery next to his beloved wife, Betsy. Looking back over Walter Cronkite's life, it is easy to see why the most trusted man in America was also considered to be the face and voice of the space race. He was Mr. Space. He was Mr. Moonshot. He was, by all accounts, an unofficial astronaut. It may not have been the only defining moment in his journalistic career, but his coverage of the decade-long push to land an American on the moon arguably came to define Cronkite's role in American society and American culture. Of all humankind's achievements in the 20th century, Cronkite wrote in his autobiography, and all of our gargantuan peccadilles as well, for that matter, the one event that will dominate the history books a half a millennium from now will be our escape from our earthly environment and landing on the moon. And so, we leave you with the stories of Missourians as they watch the moon landing unfold. We'll begin with former astronaut Linda Godwin. I remember even elementary school, I mean, for a while, everybody knew the name of all the astronauts and who was flying, right? Because there was not that many, now there's too many, I mean, not too many, but a lot to remember all the names. And I just remember, you know, going to school, too, and um, and I guess this was probably after Yuri Gagarin and not, I think, one of the, one of the you know, kids saying, oh, Russia, you know, the Soviet Union, I guess, is, they beat us, you know, they beat us. And, and so I, we watched all of that. You know, um, yeah, I mean, I literally grew up in terms of my education, starting school, uh, Mercury to Apollo, which was very compressed, you know, looking back on it. We, in a decade, we did all of that. Um, not, not the final moon landings, but certainly uh, first suborbital flight was not until early 60s, all the way to landing on the moon. Hot July, of course, July in Missouri, uh, on an afternoon, home with my family, sitting in the living room, my mom and my dad and my sister and I were there watching it. I mean, it was, everybody knew it was coming, so watching Walter Cronkite, <laughs> you know, and, and watching, you know, for the video, they were relaying back from the moon, which on our black and white TV set, you know, a little old TV set, and uh, fascinating, you know. And my parents were fascinated by it too, which really helped. You know, they, I'm sure there were some people you know, who didn't watch, although it's kind of hard to believe. Mm. But I'm happy to say, yeah, I definitely remember watching that. And, uh, and of course, now I've seen some of the clips replayed so many times, it's kind of hard to remember what it was like that first time. But sure. To know that there was something coming back from the moon, you know, that Neil Armstrong was on it was just... Pretty awesome. Jack Magruder, Kirksville. Well, the moon landing was obviously big, and uh, we were probably watching it on TV right here, but I know we went out in the yard to look up at the moon, thinking about what that meant. And uh, 
it was really made a difference. And then this little gal, my daughter, uh, her initials are Laura Ellen Magruder. L. Yeah, Lim. Lim. <laughs> Lunar Escape Module. Okay. <laughs> and that's how she became that. Okay. <laughs> she was about two. <laughs> but we didn't realize it was Lunar Escape Module when we named her, because we named her Laura Ellen Magruder. But it turned out, and then after that, we called her Lunar Escape Module. <laughs> but uh, impressive. Impressive. And I already talked about the Sputnik, and mm -hmm. I, those two events sort of were related in my mind. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what else to say, just awesome. Mm -hmm. But we certainly knew about it and experienced it big time. Mm -hmm. And then the other piece of that is that uh, there's a photograph that I've used often in my classes, and that's that photograph of the boo ball. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that really helps you look at things in a more holistic way. You don't see individual countries that are isolated. It's all one, and we're all together, and whatever happens, it's all of us, not just any one of us. So that was impressive, mm -hmm. that whole concept that just kept coming back all the time. My name is Beth Pike. I was born in Columbia, Missouri, which is where I have a very early memory of the uh, man on the moon. It was, uh, I was about five years old at the time, and uh, my father brought me out to our backyard one evening and said, I want you to look up at that moon. Right now, there are astronauts landing on the moon, and they are walking out on the surface of the moon. And I remember the look in my father's eyes was one of such joy and um, feeling of accomplishment and just an incredible, uh, almost euphoria coming from my father. So it, it pretty much passed along to me as we both looked up and I looked at the moon and I, I squinted trying to figure out, okay, where are those men on the moon? <laughs> I just had the naked eye, not even binoculars. But I remember gazing up um, at the moon with my father at that moment, sharing in the excitement and the joy, and knowing that this was like a really, really big deal. My name is David Rost. My hometown was in uh, was Chamoy, Missouri, in Osage County, Missouri. Uh, we grew up on a farm out in the country, but the uh, closest town uh, towns were Chamoy, Missouri, and Morrison, Missouri. I was pretty young at the beginning of what we would call the space race, but um, uh, my memories are less vivid about the Mercury uh, program, but I, I do remember a great deal about the Gemini uh, and Apollo program, and um, remember uh, watching each of those. It's it's maybe hard for folks these days to to truly understand what a big deal it was back then. It truly was the stuff of science fiction to watch the rocket launches. Uh, and I do remember a sense of national pride and the race against the Soviet Union uh, to see who could accomplish the task first. Um, and uh, remember watching the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite and becoming even more interested because of his obvious enthusiasm with the space program 
but it was a, a big deal, uh, each of those launches. And uh, when we could, if we were not in school, uh, we would be watching them. Uh, I, I seem to remember that we may have even watched a couple of them while we were in school. Um, but, um, you know, each launch was, uh, was a very important event, highly covered, uh, and the splashdown. Um, and uh, so I, I do remember, uh, again, mostly the Gemini and, and the Apollo missions leading up to the moon. Uh, we did watch the liftoff of uh, the Apollo 11 mission uh, at our home. Um, my dad, uh, had, we had a large console color television set. Um, we were luck, very lucky in that aspect, and we, we did watch it as a family. And, and I do remember, uh, you know, the general, general sense of excitement and thrill, uh, especially for the moon launch. Uh, but, but that's where we would have watched, watched the liftoff. Um, and we did, uh, we did in the same setting with our family around the living room and the console television set watching uh, the moon landing. Um, in 1969, so we were with our family. Uh, I would have been uh, 14 at the time, um, and again, it's, it truly seemed like the stuff of science fiction. It was it was so difficult to believe, and we were very very proud of our country and uh, of of the astronauts and the space program for being able to accomplish um, this uh, this great endeavor. I have less of a memory of watching the splashdown of the capsule, but uh, I have to believe uh, as much as we were glued to the television and all news related to all aspects of the mission, uh, that we would not have been involved heavily in watching the splashdown, especially that last concern of uh, bringing uh, bringing the astronauts home. Uh, I do remember. Uh, going back for a minute, uh, the the concern and nervousness about the actual takeoff uh, from the moon uh, after the landing and during the, the walking on the moon, uh, that uh, were they going to be able to successfully blast off from the moon? But again, I, I have less memory of the actual splashdown itself, but I'm certain uh, we would have been watching uh, that just as closely. But um, uh, it was a tremendous event. Uh, again, we've, we're so used to things in this day and age that we look back now and, it, and it, we, uh, we could uh, actually not truly appreciate it as much. Uh, but as we think about it, as we get close to the anniversary, it was a tremendous event. And I'm glad I was able to share these memories. My name is Ken Bush. I'm in St. Louis County. Uh, back in the late 1960s, I was at my parents' house in the basement specifically. Uh, my younger sister was there. I was around, uh, I think, 14 or 15 years old at the time. My parents were there, and my grandmother, my dad's mother, was there. And it was um, unforgettable. Uh, this event. As a kid, particularly for me, I love science and science fiction. Uh, but in addition to that, um, 
and some of my friends did like that too. But um, I may have been a little unique in loving heights and views. I used to scamper on top of trees and and buildings, office buildings, try to get out on the roof if I could, at least the top floor, just to look around at the ground and the sky. I was always fascinated by uh, high views. And uh, in addition, uh, fascinated by television and movies, uh, not so much the drama or the theatrics, but more of the, the technical aspects of how they could record uh, past events that way. And... Uh, I remember uh, many years earlier uh, hearing about President Kennedy uh, saying that uh, by the end of the 60s that, you know, he wanted to see to it that America had a man on the moon or people on the moon. And uh, I thought, wow, that that might really happen. (laughs) It just seemed like, you know, science fiction for something in the year 2000 or something. Another thing that made it a little more real to me is in St. Louis, uh, the family had a few friends that were engineers at McDonnell Douglas, and some worked on the Gemini program. So they were telling me a little bit, um, as much as I could understand as a kid, about their job and what, how they were engineering this spacecraft. It was just really cool to speak to someone that was engineering a spacecraft. Um, I remember at the time there was um, a a space race uh, as a sort of, and there was a, in the background of a Cold War with Russia. And I think they were saying we were hoping America will be first to the moon. And I was, myself as a kid, I was just hopeful that uh, some humans, some humans, no matter what country, would get there. But I was a little more rooting for America, not because it was necessarily good old USA, but I thought if America went there, we'd be more likely to see um, movies and pictures than the Soviet Union would have or Russia would have. So for for that reason, I was kind of a little more cheering for America because I thought the Soviet Union might or the Russian folks might hide things. Um, Anyway, I was home in the basement in uh, Kreefkor. And we were watching it on a a little 30-inch black-and-white TV. Now, we had a color TV. We were actually the first in the neighborhood to get one around 1962. I think there was only three color programs at the time. But we didn't watch that because um, I think we we knew ahead of time that the images would be in black and white. And we learned things about that ahead of time, thanks to Walter Cronkite. We watched uh, the CBS coverage of it. Uh, and in, I, I, I remember one of the impressions I had was I just uh, couldn't believe that here I'm sitting in my basement. You know, I was so uh, captivated by the images and what was going on. I guess uh, I did hear Neil Armstrong say, you know, this is one small step for man, blah, blah. But um, I don't remember that. I don't remember him saying that. I was just so thrilled and overjoyed, thought it was so cool to be alive in an era uh, where one could see this. Um, And I was a bit uh, apprehensive, a little bit afraid that something was going to go wrong and that even though it was a great accomplishment to get up there and walk around, that something would go wrong and they wouldn't be able to get off the moon or the ship would miss and just go off into deep space somewhere. 
one of the more um, neat people to watch this with wasn't my little sister who didn't quite understand what was going on. It wasn't really my parents. It was my grandmother, my dad's mom, Cora. Uh, she had she was old. She had been to the World's Fair and remembered it as a kid. And uh, she remembered, uh, I don't know, you know, development of flight, Wright Brothers and things like that. So just hearing her comments about uh, how just utterly miraculous it was, uh, she remembers a time when um, they really didn't even have airplanes, and here she was watching uh, folks walk on the moon. So it, it was really interesting to uh, hear Cora. I wish at the time I had a tape recorder to <laughs> to, to record her comments. So... Um, well, anyway, when it was over, uh, it was quite the talk of the town. Everybody, uh, friends and teachers at school, and it, they were all talking about it. And and um, um, so so that was neat. It was just um, on every everybody at the store and at grocery stores and on the school bus, and uh, were were always talking about it, even at social events that the parents would have that I was able to be to on. Yeah, for a little bit of time. It was also neat for years, perhaps decades, but particularly the next few years after that, just being outside in the evening or at night looking up at the moon, knowing that, hey, that was doable. It's a place that one could go. Uh, there have been subsequent other Apollo missions and landings, and I was really dismayed that uh, even Walter Cronkite and CBS, um, that there was diminished coverage by the networks, you it it just became less and less newsworthy, um, and and so they did report it, but it was just one of many news reports eventually, and I was disappointed in that. I um, one of the things that kind of made up for a little bit, I remember, is that the 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 video that was coming down was of a higher resolution and in color, so we were able to watch it on the color TV. Um, I remember um, hearing an interview with Von Braun, I think, one of the pioneers of the space program. After Apollo, he was saying, it's now it's on to Mars. And uh, I was hoping that sometime in the next 10 years they would, they would do that, but that certainly didn't come true. But in the 50 years since the landing, um, humankind has more than made up for it by their absolutely marvelous um, advances in telescopes and uh, um, spacecraft flybys, orbiters, and landers um, outside of the Earth, and getting uh, amazing science and photographs, the next best thing to being there. Um, I remember in the 70s, on occasion, I would meet some adults that seemed serious. They were denying that there was a moon landing, uh, that it was a conspiracy. And uh, I used to quip with them um, uh, to say that, uh, well, actually, the conspiracy is a lot more deeper and profound. Uh, not only do we not land on the moon, but there isn't even a moon. That's a conspiracy. It's just some holographic projection. And it was funny flipping the tables on them. They'd often go, oh, on the occasion I would meet somebody like that, they'd go, oh, oh, no, there's certainly a moon. And i go, oh, no, no, it's all fake. Um, I don't know if they ever got the point or not. In subsequent decades, um, I one of the thrill that I had in my life is um, 
here I was so in awe of Walter Cronkite, and um, uh, he uh, especially had this really neat, serious science show before Nova uh, that uh, he did called the 20th Century or the 21st Century, and uh, they really covered science in a serious way. That was really impactful on me as a as a kid, and I'll have to look that up on the internet. <laughs> about that old show. I don't hear much about it these days. But anyway, I mentioned that because Cronkite is from Missouri. And I had a chance when I was uh, hanging around various, because um, uh, I was interested in the television industry, like I said, um, when I was in New York, I got to uh, attend uh, various um, tapings and broadcasts at NBC and some at CBS. And at CBS, I was able to see the uh, the evening news with Walter Cronkite. So I was there right with the cameras and in the control room, and I got to meet Walter Cronkite afterwards. It was, my goodness, it was probably to me more thrilling than meeting the president. And I mentioned I was from Missouri, and he mentioned that too. So uh, that was pretty good. And then I believe I also went over to the United Nations for its general tour. But the neatest thing about it, it had nothing to do with international relations so much, it was the moon rock that was in the lobby under a big, thick glass case. So it was cool. I got to be that up close and personal with it. And then in somewhere around the early 2000s, I got to, I was at, uh, I got to meet Charlie Duke, one of the uh, few folks that got to walk on the moon, an astronaut. I got to get my picture taken with him and, and uh, ask him some questions about um you know, about his experience and things like that. He was giving a talk on his um, Christian beliefs, of all things, and and also um, uh, technically, you know, just some anecdotes about being in the moon. But anyway, I got to and actually to meet an astronaut. My name is John Brockman. I'm from Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, what I remember the moon landing was, uh, it goes back to 1957, and I was 10 years old. And Sputnik was uh, sent up, and uh, for for me as a ten year old, uh, and I remember my older brothers and sisters being worried about it, and my parents being worried about it, and it was like we were sucker punched by Russia, because where I came from, we didn't even think such a thing was possible. But three years later, in 1961, Alan Shepard did his suborbital flight, and everything seemed to be right then. We were catching up with the Russians. Uh, 1964, I was in high school, and a teacher had been down to the space center, and they had explained to them how they were going to go about and, and uh, get the uh, the men to the moon. And uh, he described in some detail the liftoff and the circling the moon and the capsule going down to the moon and coming back up, and we all thought he was crazy. And it turned out it was pretty much exactly right uh, as he explained it. Uh, I did not see the uh, the uh, liftoff. I was uh, in Germany in 1968, uh, stationed there with the U.S. Army. But uh, it uh, turned out uh, I did I did was in a, a, a small chapel over Christmas when Apollo 8 was uh, circling the moon, and I remember the minister talking about the three guys who were spending the, their uh, Christmas a long way from the Earth. And then when the Apollo 11 uh, mission happened, it so happened that my aunt, 
was a war bride that came back in about 1946 uh, from Belgium. And in 1969, she had not returned. And so I, myself and a friend from California decided to visit those people, uh, her relatives, and uh, we drove to Belgium. And uh, we met my aunt's relatives for the first time, and among them was a young man who was 17 years old, uh, who was uh, my aunt's sister's uh, son. His name was Eddie Van Geertruyden, and he spoke uh, fairly good English and escorted us around for most of the week we were there. And it turned out uh, we saw the moon landing on Belgium TV. Uh, Belgium, uh, it was being described in Flemish, but they had subtitles in English, so we were able to follow along. And I, what I remember is we talked about it, and everyone agreed it would be fun to go to the moon. They just didn't want to be the first ones. So uh, that was quite striking. Um, happened after we left there, we went to England, uh, and I happened to be in the Piccadilly uh, Square, or Piccadilly Circus, when uh, the astronauts landed. And I didn't see it, but we saw it on the, the, on the display uh, of the matinee that was scrolling, that they had landed. So we knew that. I was home by the time the later ones were done, and I can remember in 1972, the last one, Apollo 17, um, it was uh, like it was a shrug. We did it all the time, and people didn't seem to be all that interested in it. Um, those are my memories. I hope uh, that was satisfactory. This is Melissa Boatwright, Middle Sport. I was born in Andrew County, Missouri, and since college at Northwest Missouri State University, I have lived in Maryville, Missouri. In my junior year of high school, we enjoyed having a foreign exchange student, Susana Junquera de Andrade, and she lived with us for a few months that year. A year after she returned home to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, my parents, who were a farmer and a school teacher in Northwest Missouri, gave me an amazing graduation gift, sending me to visit Susanna for one month. I was there during the time of the first moon landing in July of 1969. I later became interested in the space exploration, but at the time in 1969, my interest was minimal, and I don't remember much about the Mercury or Apollo space flights. On July 20th of 1969, Susanna and I and her brothers and sisters sister all gathered in her parents' bedroom where their only TV was located, and we all watched as Neil Armstrong stepped onto the moon's surface. One of my souvenirs from that trip to Brazil is an English-language newspaper printed on July 18th of 1969, which I still have. The newspaper was called the Brazil Herald. My entire time in Brazil was a wonderful memory, and I'm glad to know that I was lucky enough to be in Brazil to actually watch the moon landing for the first time. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. As always, I am your host, Sean Rost. The show's producer is Brian Austin. The opening and concluding credits are narrated by Kevin Walsh. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests, and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri.